Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Hi, church. I'm John, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm the student minister here at Galileo Church, and I'm really glad you're all here and out there joining um, with us tonight. I'm grateful to be here with y'all. This is the third night in our sermon series, Tell It Slant, which nods to Emily Dickinson's invitation to tell the truth, but to tell it slant, which is what a successful parable aims to do. We're looking at the parables Jesus told, and we're reading Luke's parables in the middle of the gospel. Um, as Katie has reminded us, um, we're looking, or thinking about how parables are stories of absurdity and humor, how they are meant to show us something true about God's way in the world that we may not, that may not be apparent to us until a story twists our expectations of it. Jesus has jokes, and tonight's text comes just a few verses from where we left off last week. Remember last week, the parable of the dishonest manager whose shrewd money practices earn his commendation from, for making friends by means of dishonest wealth in order to avert his um, coming economic downturn. After that parable, the same crowd is still here, uh, the sick, the tax collectors, the sinners, and of course, the VRPs, the very religious persons, are gathered around Jesus now as before. Um, and now as before, the VRPs are also grumbling about what Jesus has to say because of the way of his truth-telling. In our passage today, which runs through the end of Luke 16, I imagine Jesus turning his gaze um, and his story towards them a little more pointedly and his wit beginning to pry open space for some interesting questions. Luke 16, 1931. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. He may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, 
If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm imagining a title to this story like it's in a news feed. Abraham said, what? A ghost couldn't convince you this actually happened. Swipe to keep reading. Uh, just to clarify, uh, no, it's not that Lazarus, the one in John's gospel whom Jesus raises from the dead, zombie-like after four days of decay. This is just an average Joe Lazarus. Um, well, sort of. He is the only person in any of Jesus' parables um, who gets a name. But really, he's not the focus of the story's text. He never gets a word in and only has events happen to him. Apart from him desiring to eat, uh, dogs lick him, angels take him, Abraham comforts him. The rich man, on the other hand, has a lot to say after he's buried, wanting to send Lazarus to his aid, to his brothers with a warning. Now gone are his fine purple linen robes and the daily parties with his friends um, inside the gates. I'll admit that on my first reading, I didn't hear the wit or the irony in the story really at all. Um, this one's tricky. If you're like me and have been taught a rigid allegorical way of reading scriptures, and are familiar with a certain tradition of heaven and hell theology based on punishment. Um, I first heard an intrusive dialogue that takes unquestioned the if-then logic in Abraham's reply to the rich man, meaning the more you suffer, the better, because later in heaven, God will reward you for your suffering. In this way of reading, the implication is then that God will also get back at the ones who dared to enjoy anything in life. And I should take comfort in that, right? Um, I'd like to thank my fundagelical churches of origin for this reading. However, um, however, Jesus seems to be much less interested in the technicalities of some afterlife judgment when he's crafting this story. Instead, what if Jesus is inviting the crowd to question why they would want to see others be punished for good and bad things in life? What if we're invited to think about gates and ghosts and what we think about good things and bad things and who has access to these? What if Jesus is also slanting a particular view of clear-cut justice that's based on formulaic principles and what if he's saying something about community responsibility for inequality in the here and now? The parable opens, and Jesus knows what everyone in the crowd has been taught. If you live right, pray right, just the right way, um, then you'll be rewarded with wealth. Make a name for yourself. If you don't have it all together, or say if you don't read the text just right, um, then you'll do bad things, get bad things, like symptoms of not trying hard enough, illness, a short life, suffering. These all come with being a sinner. For the crowd Jesus is talking to, 
this is the assumed logic of how justice works. If God is fair and if fate balances everything out, um, how else could there be some people who have good things and some who don't in life? Everyone does get what they deserve, right? Contrasting the assumed logic of how things are, Jesus sets the scene to this story. Lazarus dies, uh, the rich man dies. Here's the first spin. Abraham comforts Lazarus while the rich man is taken to Hades. This is a proper drama. The rich man is sent not to the Jewish afterlife, not Gehenna, but to Hades, the domain of the Greek god of the underworld. Jesus has also taken some liberties with character roles, and he's reimagined Father Abraham, the parent of the Hebrew people and the one who's speaking as the mouthpiece for this afterlife judgment. So it's act two, and the fortunes are reversed now. I imagine that in the audience, um, the VRP's ears are starting to burn as the parable world shows the rich man sliding down from the ivory tower as they feel the gravity around them shift and as the parable subtly calls into question their pseudo-righteousness. In contrast, the sick and poor in the crowd hear a really good underdog story um, and they imagine their fate reversed. It's ironic that the rich man's name is unknown while Lazarus is named. In real life, the opposite would be true. The logic of if you're good, then you get good, if bad, then get bad is slanted. The riches don't necessarily mean you're good, or do the, nor do the sores and hunger mean you're bad. In the parable world here that Jesus is constructing, it goes, if you ignore the suffering outside your gate while you enjoy riches, you'll pay for it later. But if you suffer now, it's all right because you'll be rewarded later. Luke 16:24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, the rich man pleads. Abraham, from where he's comforting Lazarus, holding him on his chest in a tender embrace like a parent calming a child, he looks across the chasm to the rich man in Hades and calls back hey, you got what was coming to you. And anyway, what, are you, what you're asking is impossible because between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. Ouch. Was Abraham always such an ass? Uh, the irony isn't missed. Well, except maybe on the VRPs. Um, the rich man is also ruthless, asking Lazarus be sent to serve his new needs um, now that he's the one desiring just the tip of his tongue be cooled, like Lazarus desired uh, just the crumbs from the table, a modest proposal and one that maintains the same power relationship where Lazarus is sent and is required to serve, there is still a gate in the rich man's imagination. For Jesus, the jester, this ironic twist is right there with other parables we've seen. It's like the ridiculousness of the woman's neighborhood party after finding the misplaced coin, or of the shepherds chasing the one sheep af after it strays. 
maybe it's also like Jesus riding into Jerusalem on an actual ass later down the road. Maybe a fair, faded outcome isn't all that it's cracked up to be, though. Luke 16, 26. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. Maybe this isn't as comforting as expected. Is Lazarus' eternity of watching the suffering of the rich man in Hades with an impassable gap and nothing to do for him any less miserable than before? It's ridiculous enough that it's comical and it's nauseating. The great chasm, I mean the gate, I mean the if-then logic of retaliatory justice. It's the same system as before now with Lazarus inside, but the rich man outside suffering. What if the same great chasm in the afterlife is the same one that keeps Lazarus desiring only the crumbs and the rich man failing to care for him in real life? What if one of Jesus's disruptive implications is that poor people are not evil, but property and disease are evils that can be alleviated here and now? After Abraham rejects his plea for mercy, the rich man accepts he cannot avert his suffering. But maybe, maybe Lazarus could be sent to my brothers, to my father's household. If they are terrified enough of what they don't want to happen to them, surely that will be convincing evidence enough to cause change and to avoid them ending up like me. In Luke 16, 27, 28, he calls back, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Here Jesus brings the irony to full effect. Even though he calls Abraham father, the rich man can only identify concern for his five biological brothers and his household. And did he have any siblings who weren't men? He's not motivated so that his family will know how to tear down their gates to care for the next Lazarus at the gate, but rather he's fixated on his own pain and on preventing it for others, for them. The rich man fails to recognize his exclusive understanding of compassion as in life he doesn't recognize his kinship with the whole human family. Send Lazarus to warn them. What if the place to extend compassion were outside of the gate? What if justice means widening the circle of who could be my sibling? When I take the parable to mean one thing only, allegory for what to do and not to do, that's, that doesn't go so well for me either. Um, that's when I start to think it's prescriptive of how God imagines justice or mercy or the responsibility for healing the world? What if that responsibility isn't something I can defer to some afterlife and it happens now? Allegory isn't all lost, though. The, the parable turns my assumed logic back on me, and it brings forth my context. This reading, this sermon, is much of me approximating my context. 
Um, I do come from a very large family, by the way, and so there's some resonance. I hear something resonating in the way that the rich man, like rich men and rich nations, tend to asking Lazarus to do the work in death that he didn't care enough to do in life, that the rich man didn't care enough to do in life, to request Lazarus to ease his pain and to ask Lazarus to go as an object lesson, as a ghost, because he died hungry and covered with sores, to teach his family, his five brothers and his household, why they should care about other human beings. I hear in this echoes of the way that the official processes in the US for seeking asylum and for migrating, doing it the right way, is a process where the ones in power ask migrants to prove with their bodies that their pains, their fears, hopes are real enough to deserve compassion. Or in contrast, where the politics behind deterrence policies make it illegal to give water to humans in the desert and advertise in border cities, no mas cruces, which is wordplay meaning both don't cross anymore and no more crosses. The gate, I mean, the great chasm, I mean, the internal border walls that limit compassion, these are connected to the rich man's narrow idea of who is included in his family. What if the same great chasm in the story's afterlife is the same one that in real life prevents us through our processes from caring for our neighbors in real life? The allegory is limited, but the questions they prompt from me are helpful. Um, since growing in community at Galileo, I have felt a difference in reading texts with others like this. I have appreciated the challenge and the missional aspiration to imagine space for those who aren't here yet. That same one that imagined me in ways I don't know before I was here yet. Um, I'm encouraged by the effort to learn and practice justice that engages the ongoing work of making space in the present, um, listening for the ever-changing, weird, and surprising way that God moves in the world. The parable has read me in this reflection. I'm not sure how to leave this one. Parables pry open areas for new questions each time. What ifs I have not imagined yet um, linger? What other imagination can the parable pry open when it slants our world? What do you think? Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. 
You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.